Well, for those of you who are keeping score, you probably remember that I did something a little bit risky last week. I don't know if it's ever been done in the history of the church. You know that the great hymn writer compared sinful people to worms. That's been said. I don't know if a pastor has ever called his congregation a group of slugs. So if you're visiting with us this morning, uh, fear not, but it is true if you heard rumors that I called this group of Christ followers slugs. One of the crucial observations that we made about slugs is this. Slugs are exceedingly slow. Slugs are slow. But we do know this. Even though slugs are slow, they make progress. And so like a slug, there, I just did it again. Like a slug, Christians who have been transformed by the grace of God will, they will make progress. If you're like me, sometimes you find yourself in a position where the progress is not as quickly as you would like it to be. But the fact remains, nonetheless, that if you are in Christ, there is a guarantee built into this. If you are in Christ, you will make progress. Last week, we began the process of describing what we called the marks of a converted person. What are the marks of a a regenerate person? What are the marks of a person who is a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? And you'll recall that the means of progress, the means of progress for you and I as slugs, for you and I who are in Christ, is that we abide in Christ. And that was central to the argument last week. It's central to the argument of John chapter 15 that we will continue to study together today. And you'll recall that that word abide comes from the word, and it's important that you'll remember this, especially as I share a photograph with you in just a minute, or rather a work of art. The word for abide is the word meno. It's the word meno, and the Greek word meno simply means that we are to continue in unbroken fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I described it as follows. It means to keep on keeping on. It means to continue in this state of grace. And so last week we said that people who walk with Jesus, first and foremost, believe in Jesus. They turn from their sins and they turn to Christ and they believe in Jesus. Secondly, they will experience the fatherly discipline of God. And then finally we learn that disciples bear fruit to the glory of God. Now, last week, immediately after the service, uh, C.J. Sanborn, who I don't think I see him. Is C.J. here? And Megan's not here either? Oh, That's such a bummer. Well, please tell him about what happened this morning because CJ came up to me and he said, Pastor Dave, Pastor Dave, you have to see Megan's picture, his wife's picture. And so he handed me this, and this got a little bit too blown up, I think, but he handed me this and I automatically resonated with it. And I, I wanted to say in front of the whole church family for Megan's benefit that this, in my humble estimation, is... A a, a masterful piece of art. It really is. Because what she did 
is someone who, is, who thinks more on the right side of her brain. That's what this picture tells me, and I wish I had this ability, but I don't. It tells me that she understood the sermon. In a couple of pictures, she, she summarized the sermon. And so you see in the center, and by the way, this slug is better than any slug I could ever draw. You see the slug. You see the slug, and you see what is behind the slug? It's that nasty trail that the slug leaves behind, right? Which we didn't have a chance to address. I'm sure that fits in the metaphor some way. And there's several things I'd like to say, but I'll, I'll leave it for another time. And notice, notice the, the Greek word meno. Here is the slug, and you see, and Megan didn't even need to write the word progress. I don't think, but you can tell because of the nasty trail that progress has been made. And so she, she helped us to understand that this slug is making progress. This slug is abiding in Christ. That's the meaning of meno. The slug is, he's hanging in there. The slug is keeping on, keeping on. It's unbroken, unhindered fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. The thing I like the best about this work of art is what lies above the slug. Because every slug, by definition, there I did it again. Every Christ follower, by definition, will bear spiritual fruit to the glory of God. If you're here this morning, you say, well... That's not me, Pastor. I've never, I'm a professing follower of Jesus, and I have never bore spiritual fruit to the glory of God. Let me say that you find yourself in a very precarious position because every follower of Christ will bear fruit to the glory of God. So I want to thank uh, Megan for kindly allowing me to show this absolutely stunning piece of art. And I am not joking. It blew me away. On a a little scrap of paper, she summarized the essence of the message. Well, this morning, what I want to do with that picture in mind, I want to take you back to the vineyard. I want to take you back to the vineyard where Jesus is using an agricultural metaphor to make a powerful point that will not only speak to the, the hearts of his disciples almost 2,000 years ago, but it will speak to each one of you. But it will speak to your hearts and encourage you in your Christian walk. You will remember in this agricultural metaphor that Jesus sets the stage for us. You remember that Jesus calls himself the true vine. He is not only the true vine, he calls his father the vine dresser. And then Jesus goes on to distinguish between two kinds of branches. And there are only two kinds of branches. There's the branch that bears fruit, and there is the branch that doesn't bear fruit. And these respective branches represent converted people, and they represent unconverted people. And so this morning, what I want to do is have you turn with me to John chapter 15. And this will be a bit of a review, but I think it will help us to to get on the same page together. I want to have you read with me John chapter 15 and read with me verses 1 to 11. Let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Jesus says in verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. 
already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is the word of God. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. And so what I want to do this morning is to continue this discussion and to give four more marks of a converted person. What are four additional marks of the branch that bears fruit? The fourth mark that emerges in verse 4 is this, is that disciples now are united to Christ. Disciples are united with Christ. And really this gets back to the meaning of the word abide. Look with me in verse 4. Jesus says, abide in me. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And so once again, this word abide from the Greek word meno means to continue an unbroken, unhindered, healthy relationship and union with the Lord Jesus Christ. One writer says this, nothing is more central or basic than union and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you can put it like this, to abide in Christ is to be united with Christ. I want to survey the teaching of Scripture about this important reality. I want to recommend a book. This is a book that I have drawn from. I talked to a a pastor friend of mine in Chilliwack just a few days ago, and he was asking, what would be some recommendations for a good summer read? Well, this is not the book I recommended. He was looking for a completely different genre. He's looking for some good history books. For our purposes today, I want to encourage you, if you need a good summer read, to read this little book that was published in 1955 entitled Redemption Accomplished and Applied by Dr. John Murray. I don't think I've ever read a book that explained in such vivid detail what union with Christ is all about. I also want to give a bit of an advertisement uh, as we move into the fall season. Beginning in September, we're going to try something new where both on the website and in the bulletin, the first week of every month, we will include a recommended book. 
and I, I am kind of looking forward to this, to recommend what I would consider to be the best of the best. Uh, as I look around, as I survey the, the marketplace of ideas and even look in the walls of the church, I see more and more people reading things that don't benefit them. And so we want to be sure that as a church family, we're reading good material, that we have our hands on good material. And that's certainly the case with John Murray's excellent book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Here's some of his observations as we examine this very important matter of union with Christ. He says this, the only reason we are united with Christ is due to election. The only reason that you are united with Christ, if you are a follower of Christ, is due to the doctrine of election. Now, I want to have you hold your finger in John chapter 15 and turn rapidly with me to the book of Ephesians. And I'm only going to mention this in passing because next week we'll unpack this with uh, uh, in greater detail. As we look at John chapter 15, verse 16, where Jesus tells his disciples, You did not choose me, much to the chagrin of many evangelicals, but I chose you. And so we see in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul begins this extended discussion, which in the Greek, verses 3 to 14, is one sentence. It's one sentence. It's as if he sat down and he began to pen his letter to the believers in Ephesus. And he was just filled with joy and overflowing with delight and happiness as he wrote about sovereign grace. Look at just verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him. That is, the Father chose us in Him, that is, Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. I received much feedback on the doctrine of predestination and election. In fact, I receive an awful lot of feedback. Why? Why the emphasis? The emphasis is simple. It occurs throughout sacred scripture. All through the word of God, we learn about the doctrine of election. And John Murray is certainly right that the only reason that Christ followers have been been united with Christ, it's because God chose us in eternity past. Let me make it even more simple. If God didn't choose a specific individual, that person will never be united with Christ. And so if you're in Christ today, know this, he has chosen you. God has chosen you, which the reaction should be not one of shaking one's fist. Rather, the reaction should be one of, thank you, God, for choosing me. Why would you choose me? Why would you choose me? Some people say, I have no idea. But Ephesians chapter 1 makes it very clear the reason that he chooses some The reason that he chooses some is for the the great glory of his grace, so that he would receive the glory. 
Murray goes on to say that it is in Christ that Christian life and behavior are conducted. Paul says in Romans 6.4, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That is to say, union with Christ matters. If you are here, if you are following Jesus, that means that you have been united with Christ and it matters. It influences the way you live your life. It will influence the way you engage in recreation. It will influence the way fathers, the way you father. It will influence the way you are a husband. It influences how you act at your place of employment. It influences your thought life. Indeed, union with Christ influences everything. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you. Speaking of the, the, the believers in Corinth. Because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Murray says, it is in Christ that all of God's elect die. Psalm chapter 116 verse 15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And then finally, Murray goes on to say that it is in Christ that the elect of God will be resurrected and glorified. Paul says in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty two, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. That is all of God's elect. And so this points us back to this, this marvelous reality that we, as branches who bear fruit, as we who are abiding in Christ, by definition, we are united with Christ. In one of my most memorable portions of this book by John Murray, he goes on to say this. He says, apart from union with Christ... We cannot view past, present, or future with anything but dismay and Christless dread. That is to say, union with Christ, once again, affects everything. It affects our past, it affects our present, it affects our future. And that leads me to ask this all-important question. Are you rightly connected to the vine? Who is the true vine? It's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you rightly connected to the vine? Are you rightly related to God through the person and work of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? You know this verse very well. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one will boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, one of the main messages I want to convey today is the only reason that we're in Christ, outside of the the doctrine of election, is owing to the gospel. Were it not for the gospel, none of us would be in Christ. Were it not for the God-man who came and, and lived a life that I could never live, that you could never live, and died a death that I deserve to die, we would be in trouble, to put it mildly, 
A friend of mine came up to me a few minutes ago and told me that he had recently taught on the wrath of God. Friends understand that apart from the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the wrath of God remains upon us. Apart from embracing the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are under the almighty wrath of God. And so, if you are in Christ, if you are numbered among those who are abiding in Christ, you are rightly related to God through the vine, the Lord Jesus Christ, may your hearts be filled with joy this morning. Because you are abiding in Christ, because you are united with Christ, the great hymn writer and pastor and former slave trader, John Newton, uttered these words that you're very familiar with. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. You know what's amazing about that hymn? which I might remind you is the number one hymn in the world with Christians and non-Christians alike. You ask anyone, do you know any Christian songs? Yep, Amazing Grace. Yet it is the message of that song that is daily repudiated. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Praise God that we are united with Christ. There's a fifth mark of a disciple, a fifth mark of a converted person that's found in verses 4 and 5. Namely, disciples receive divine enablement to obey God. You see, when we are united to Christ, we receive divine enablement to keep the commandments. Again, verse 5, I am the vine, Jesus says, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me And I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Notice, for apart from me, you can do some things. That's a horrible miss. Thank you, Jessica. You got that. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Yet, sometimes what I'm hearing from evangelicals is, apart from me, you can do some things. Apart from me, Jesus says, you can do absolutely nothing. An individual that was born in 354 who went on to become one of the most famous history, uh, famous theological minds in the history of the church, Augustine of Hippo. How would you like to have that name? Augustine of Hippo. He helps us to understand how sovereign grace enables us to obey. He said this, During all those years of rebellion, where was my free will? You have to remember that Augustine, for the first 25, 30 years of his life, was was a, a young man and a man who, he lived with a mistress. He committed wanton immorality. He had a filthy mouth. He lived a filthy life. He was a man who was far away from the grace of God. And then through the ministry of a man named Ambrose, a pastor... He heard the preaching of the Word of God, and he he heard the Word of God explode as Ambrose would preach from the authoritative, infallible Word of God. And a work of grace took place in Augustine's life. You remember as he was in that, the garden. As he was sitting in the garden, he heard the the voice of a child that said, Tololege, Tololege. I don't know how many times I've told this story. I I never tire of hearing it or telling it. 
So he heard Tola Lege, Tola Lege, take up and read. And so here's what he did, and this this is not the 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 greatest method of Bible study, but he just he 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 found a Bible and he opened to Romans chapter thirteen. He did what he heard the child say to do. He took up and read and he read these words, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me say this. Did you know what happened so many hundreds of years ago to Augustine could happen to someone today, right now? And so the plea is, Tololege. Tololege. Take up and read. Hear the words that Augustine read. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Verse 13 says, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies or drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, but in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And instantly something happened in the heart of Augustine. His heart was transformed. His heart was regenerated. He he did what Paul refers to as he, he was transferred from darkness to light. Now his desires have been totally renovated. His heart had been transformed. His mind was changed. He sees the Word of God now. He begins to understand the Word of God. And so he writes, during all those years of rebellion, where is my free will? What was the hidden secret place from which it was summoned in a moment so that I might bend my neck to your easy yoke? How sweet it was for me to be rid of all those fruitless joys that I once feared to lose. Notice what he says now. You, speaking of God, you drove them from me. You who are the true, the sovereign joy. John Piper remarks, He helps us to understand the Augustinian framework of grace. He says this, this is Augustine's understanding of grace. And these words I'm going to utter right now are some of the most important words I have ever read. I remember where I was. Have you ever had that moment? Like, where were you when the space shuttle exploded? How many of you remember? Where were you when JFK was assassinated? How many of you remember? Wow. If you were born in 1964, don't raise your hand because it happened in 1963. (laughs) I remember where I was. I remember the time of day. It was at the Dwarshack Reservoir in Idaho. I was speaking at a high school water ski retreat. That was a fun week. Seven days of water skiing and preaching. Woo! And I remember it like it happened yesterday. I read Piper's words. He said this. This is Augustine's understanding of grace. Grace is God's giving us sovereign joy in God that triumphs over joy in sin. Do you get the magnitude of those words? Grace is God's giving us sovereign joy in God that triumphs over joy in sin. In other words, God works deep in the human heart to transform the springs of joy so that we love God more than sex or anything else. Loving God, in Augustine's mind then, is never reduced to deeds of obedience or acts of willpower. Close quote. And so here's a bold challenge. 
This will run against the, the fabric of American culture. Are you ready? If you think you can obey God apart from the grace of God, just give up. If you think you can obey God apart from the grace of God, give up. If you think you have the ability to keep the commandments apart from sovereign grace, just give up. The only way a sinful human being can obey God, worship God, move in the direction of God, incline him or herself to God, is to be enabled and empowered by sovereign grace. And that is exactly what you receive when you come to Jesus. When you come to Jesus, you see, you get much more than salvation from hell. And that's a great thing to be saved from. You are also given divine enablement to obey. That's what God gives you when you trust Christ. Many of you are fans or readers of Jerry Bridges. And I don't know if you've had a chance to read one of the last books that he wrote before he went to be with the Lord not too many months ago. It's a book I had the opportunity to read just several weeks ago. It's a book entitled, God Took Me by the Hand, A Story of God's Unusual Providence. And as, as a person who has read just about everything that Jerry Bridges ever wrote, this was like, it was like having a chance to sit in a big leather chair next to your hero. For about 170 pages. It, it, it was sheer delight. Here's what Jerry Bridges says. So where does the gospel fit into a ministry of challenge to the pursuit of holiness? He says the answer is that of the gospel rightly understood and applied to one's daily life. Is the only true and lasting motivation for the pursuit of holiness. It is the gospel, listen, it is the gospel that changes I ought to obey God to I want to obey God out of gratitude for what he has done for me in Christ. Do you see the distinction? Instead of, oh, I have to obey God again, it's now that my heart has been transformed like Augustine's heart. Now, I don't obey God because of willpower. I obey God because, man, it's exciting. Have you experienced that? The joy of walking with Jesus. There's a sixth qualification here, a sixth characteristic, rather, of disciples, and that is found in verses 7 to 9. And that is that disciples have an intimate relationship with God. Now, if you think about this for any amount of time, this should literally blow you away. Because in the days of the Old Testament, when the new covenant was set on the table before Israel, one of the, one of the promises of the new covenant was, I will be your God and you will be my people. That is to say, we have an intimate relationship with God. Verses 7 to 9. Jesus says, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Listen. Followers of Jesus, we have the privilege of prayer, of direct, unhindered communication and intimacy with the living God. Can you imagine that? 
So tell him your needs. Tell him your hurts. Tell him your your longings. Bring your requests and commune with him. The great 17th century Puritan John Owen said it like this. When the soul discovers the excellency and sweetness of Christ in the banqueting house, it is overcome and cries out to be a partaker of his fullness. The soul is lovesick, overcome with the mighty power of God's love, having once tasted the sweetness of Christ in the banqueting house and not being fully satisfied, makes the heart sick. Therefore, the soul cries out, Sustain me! I have caught a glimpse of the King and His beauty. I have tasted the fruit of His righteousness. My soul longs for Him. And so because we have an intimate relationship with God through the true vine, the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the privilege of bearing fruit to the glory of God. We have the privilege of being known and loved by the creator of the universe. Now imagine with me, and I've, I've made reference to this several times because when we get to chapter 17 of John's gospel, we will spend a great deal of time here. And that is this, that the same love the Father has for the Son, imagine that. The same love the Father has for the Son, He has for His people. Nothing more, nothing less. The way that the Father loves the Son and the Spirit is the same way that He loves you. And this, in my frame of reference, is what I like to call a game-changing love. This is game-changing love. This is love that we have been created for and received through the almighty power of the gospel. There's one more characteristic I want to share with you about the converted that emerges in verse 9 and 10. Read it with me. Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. And so there we see it again. Abide in my love, says Jesus. How do we obey the commandments of God? How do we keep the commandments of God? Jesus says, by abiding in His love, just as He kept the commandments of God and abided in His love. And you will see a pattern emerging here. It is a pattern that suggests that justifying grace produces good work to the glory of God, not the other way around. Please remember that we do not work to receive merit from Almighty God. We don't work to receive the the blessing of Almighty God. Rather, it's the opposite. Is when we receive justifying grace, that justifying grace works. John MacArthur wrote a book almost 30 years ago called Faith Works. That's a great title. By definition, faith works. And so Piper once again describes Augustine's passion for God. He says, loving God is being so satisfied in God and so delighted in all that He is for us that His commandments cease to be burdensome. His commandments cease to be burdensome. One of the joys of walking with Jesus is obeying the commandments of God. I want to ask, as one of your shepherds today, is is your passion, is the passion of your heart to, to please 
the Lord Jesus Christ. To, to live a, a life of obedience to His Word. I want you to listen to the importance that the Word of God places on the obedient life. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 9 says this, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. And so the branches that bear fruit represent the converted person. The branches that do not bear fruit represent the unconverted person. I want to take the last several minutes to look at three characteristics now of the unconverted person. Now, suffice it to say, the unconverted person does not abide in Christ. The unconverted person has never abided with Christ. The unconverted person may have made a profession of faith, but if faith is not working... If faith is not real, we know this, that person has never been abiding with Christ. The conversion, in quotes, never took root. Notice the first of three characteristics of the unconverted person. And back up with me to verse 2. Jesus says it like this, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, that is the vine dresser, that is the father, takes Away, And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. I want you to see here, the first mark of an unconverted person in this passage is that he or she is taken away by the Father. The Greek word for taken away is very strong. It's very strong. It means to destroy. It means to destroy. And so, like a good vine dresser always does, he takes away the branches that are not properly bearing fruit. Every year in Palestine, gardeners prune their vines. They cut off the dead wood that has no life in it and trim the living branches that will yield even more fruit, as we read in verse 2. John MacArthur has said, because they are detrimental to the health of the vine, the vine dresser would cut off the dry, lifeless, withered branches. He takes the unregenerate false branches away from their superficial attachment to the vine, and they're thrown away. They're destroyed. Number two, I want you to see that another mark of the unconverted person is that they are powerless to do good to the glory of God. And I want to make a distinction here, but I want to first read verse 5 with you once again, where Jesus says, I am the vine... You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Here's the distinction I want to make. Many people misunderstand at this point when they hear someone like me say that unbelievers are powerless to do good to the glory of God. Now, remember this. Unbelievers can and do do good every day. Every time a new medicine is developed by an unbeliever, that is good. Every time a, an attorney is able to, to get an innocent man or woman off the hook and have that person acquitted, that is good. That was good work. Every time a, a, a judge issues justice and carries out the, the, the law, that is good work. At our level, every time a a teenager helps a little old lady across the street. That is good. But if you are not converted, 
It is not good to the glory of God. That is the distinction. For without being connected to the vine, the branch is powerless to grow. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, when you consider, just for a moment, the reason that God created us, which is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, this becomes highly significant. Think about it. God created all people to glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says this, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So I want you to stop and think about this just for a moment. When we fail to glorify God, the reason for our creation, when we fail to glorify God, we heap a great insult upon His name. When we fail to glorify God, we jettison the joy that every human soul longs for and craves after. And so here is the great insight that Jonathan Edwards teaches. He says to to glorify God and to experience joy are not at odds. To glorify God and to experience joy are not at odds. Rather, they are one and the same. They are intimately connected. And so here is the irony I want to share with you today. When we fulfill the purpose we were created, namely to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, here's what happens. We experience joy. When we glorify God and enjoy Him forever, we experience joy. Yet millions of people all around the world have distorted this truth. The world tells us to live for ourselves. The world tells us to do our own thing. The world tells men and women to to gaze at pornography. But living according to the demands of the world will never bring joy. Rather, it always brings death. For the wages of sin is... For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus our Lord. I want you to look at the final characteristic of the unconverted person in this passage. It emerges in verse 6, and it's a sobering reality. Jesus says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. You see, here we see that the unconverted man, the unconverted woman, the unconverted boy, the unconverted girl is judged Eternally, The worldly person is deluded and deceived as he pursues an ungodly agenda. Indeed, Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that appears right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. Verse 6 says that the non-abiding branches will be what? They'll be tossed out. They'll be thrown away. They're thrown into the fire and burned. And such a fate... Of this kind of person is described by Jesus in Matthew 13. He says, So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place will there be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This morning, there is a weighty, weighty reality that stares each one of us in the faith. Face, rather. We are to, first of all, either abide in Christ... 
and give evidence of your faith that, that glorifies a great and awesome God and such a person is a branch that is connected to the true vine, to Jesus Christ. But there's a second option. To fail to abide in Christ results in eternal judgment. Jesus made this declaration about Judas. He said, Woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. And Jesus' words not only apply to Judas Iscariot, his words apply to every false disciple. His words apply to every pseudo-disciple. As we close this morning, I want to illustrate this by using this uh, little container of dirt. Because each one of us is faced with two choices. Either we choose the container of dirt or we choose the alternative. I don't want to do it this way. Did you grab a little bit of dirt? Just Oh, you could take more than that. There you go. All right. Don't get it on your Bible. Okay, good. All right. I wouldn't do that to the girls. Unless you want some dirt. So here's what happens in our lives. Is the world offers us ungodly pleasure the world offers us ungodly entertainment the world offers us uh, sexual relationship outside of the castle walls of marriage the the world offers us pride ungodly pride the question is this now that we have four young men who only in this metaphor only this illustration have have grabbed some dirt, and I I know what you guys are thinking. You're like, here I am, sitting on the front row. What am I going to do with this dirt? And maybe that relates to someone here today, where year after year after year after year, you have been consuming the dirt. And it's not only in your hands, it's in your pockets, it's in your backpack. You're like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. Your backpack is filled with dirt. You don't know what to do with it. And the world tells us, oh, read a self-help book. That will help you. And really all that does, you might put a little bit of dirt back in the container, but you still have a backpack filled with dirt. What are you going to do with the dirt? And the only thing that you can do with the dirt is to give it all to Jesus. So I'm going I'm to get you guys all off the hook and you can give back the dirt. Unless you want to keep it, but that would be very bad for the illustration. <laughs> is, is you, take, you take your dirt to Jesus and you take your dirt to the cross, you take your sin to the cross, and like many times in counseling situations, I've seen this over and over and over again, Pastor, I've, I, I've committed a mistake. I wish people would stop saying that. It wasn't a mistake. It was a sin. It was a sin that Jesus died for. And so... The world is, is attracted to the dirt, but once it gets in their hands, they're not quite sure what to do with it. There's another alternative. There's another alternative, and that is represented by this container of water. And that's something that I'm guessing you guys wouldn't mind drinking right now, right? That, that sounds, I mean, it, that would taste pretty good, right? And so you have, you have the option of the dirt, you have the option of the water. And if you think about it, the water represents the converted person. And what do we know about the converted person? 
The converted person believes in Jesus. The converted person has been under the hand of God's fatherly discipline. The converted person bears fruit to the glory of God. Today we've learned that the converted person is united with Jesus. That now you have received divine enablement to obey God. I've told this story many times, but in 1974, I got on my knees and I told God that I was a sinner. And that I knew I was going to hell if I didn't trust the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he accomplished on the cross for me. You know, when Jesus came and resided within my heart, at that very second, as a seven-year-old, I received divine enablement to obey God. Why? It's because of the gospel. See, disciples not only receive divine enablement to obey God, they have an intimate relationship with God. And so your prayer life grows and increases. Now they have, they, they obey the commandments of God. And the only reason why any of these can become possible is because of the gospel. Now, I've left one verse to the end for a very specific reason. I want you to look at it with me. Verse 11. As we think about the option of the dirt and the option of the the living water, as Jesus says. Jesus says, these things, that is verses 1 to 10. These things I have spoken to you, that your joy, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Once you, if you like to write in your Bible, if you have a highlighter, mark that word full. Because it is a massive word. It is a word that has incredible implications. It's a word that means complete. It's a word that means filled. And so what Jesus is indicating here is when you come to Christ, you not only get the full meal deal, you're, not only, you're full to the, to the brim, right? I paid $4.75 for a cup of coffee at a particular coffee store in Whatcom County a few days ago. When I paid four seventy five, I'm gonna get on a rant here. I want my cup filled up. You know what I'm saying? I don't want that much foam and that much coffee, right? That's called a rip, right? When you come to Christ, you don't get ripped off. You get not only filled to the rim, but what does verse eleven say? That my joy may be in you, and the joy may be full. And the word full in the Greek means overflowing, not just filled to the rim. It means overflowing. When you come to Christ, you get all that and then some. Grace overflows. It superabounds in your life. But here's what I hear. Oh, but pastor, that it, I'll have to keep the commandments of God. The only way we keep the commandments of God is via the gospel because we've been giving this super abounding grace. Once again, to experience joy and to glorify God, you see, are not at odds. Rather, they're one and the same. That's why John Piper for years has been saying that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And so there is a joy that comes in walking with Jesus. It is a deeply practical joy. It is a deeply personal joy. And it, it is a joy that is deeply profound. I want to leave you with a thought and trust that the Holy Spirit will make a direct application to your heart on this day. That joy is not only an incredible privilege. Joy is something that each of us 
are called to. For the scripture says, rejoice in the Lord always. And just to make sure that we got it right, Paul says, and I'll say it again, rejoice. This morning, do you know the joy of walking with Jesus? For some people, this may be the day of salvation. For Christ followers, I urge you to experience the the daily overflowing joy of what it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and to, to turn from the world, to turn from the flesh, to turn from the devil. It is the best of all options. Have you experienced the joy of walking with Jesus? Let's pray. Father, thank you that your son was uh, tuned in to the culture of his day, wandering out into the fields, uh, pointing to the, the reality of agriculture that the disciples were very familiar with. It's a, it's a metaphor that here in Whatcom County we can uh, understand with a great deal of depth and insight. And so, Father, my, my prayer is today that we would be experiencing the joy of what it means to, to walk with your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God, uh, my heart today is for those especially who have decided to embrace the container filled with dirt. They've decided to pursue the agenda of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And I pray, God, that today through your word, by the power of your spirit, that someone would see the reality of the gospel, that they will, as the scriptures say, taste and see for your good. May they see the, the unbelievable freedom of what it means to walk with Jesus. May they see the, the beauty of salvation. May they see the the great empowerment that we receive when we trust in Christ. Now we have the ability to worship. Now we have the ability to obey. Now we have hearts that are inclined to the God of the universe. God, I pray that you would sink these realities deep into our hearts. And even as we sing these last few songs, that you would minister to us and that we would leave today overflowing with joy because of who we are. In Christ, may we experience the joy of walking with Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.